Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 17 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by actual FBI cases. In this episode, I interview retired supervisory special agent Ron Nolan. Ron served in the FBI for 21 years. He spent the early part of his career in the Philadelphia Division, what a surprise, as a member of the SWAT team working violent crime. He was also the criminal informant coordinator. Later, he was reassigned to the Newark Division, where he supervised a violent crimes and fugitive task force and also supervised the evidence response team. The cases he talks about in this episode, however, all occurred while he served as the legal attache in Lagos, Nigeria. The first case is about the investigation of the death of a teenage girl from New Jersey who dies while on a school trip in Ghana. The second case is actually about the frequent kidnapping of American oil and utility workers in Nigeria. Now, Ron served four years as legat Lagos. He represented the FBI and the Department of Justice on matters involving eight African countries, and he also served on the director's LEGAT advisory committee representing all 56 countries in the continent of Africa. Before we get to that interview, I do want to talk about crime fiction, my crime fiction. Earlier this week, a friend of mine asked me if I made money from hosting and producing FBI Retired Case File Review. And I told her no, that I will always turn down the many offers I have to place advertisement on the show. She then indicated that this was probably the most time-consuming and expensive hobby that I would ever have. And I had to make sure she understood that this is not a hobby. I consider hosting and producing this podcast, a business venture. Because in September, my debut novel, Pay to Play, will be published by Curtis Brown Unlimited. I'm very excited about this opportunity and have been very busy the last few weeks getting ready for the book launch. The cover is fantastic. And I'm currently going over all the edits and changes requested by my editor and proofreader. So all I ask is that if you're enjoying the podcast, when the book comes out or when it's available for pre-order in September, that you consider checking it out. That's all about pay to play for now. Here's the show. Hi, everyone. I am excited to introduce my guest for today. Ron Nolan. Hi, Ron. Hi, Jerry. Well, this is going to be pretty interesting. I have done a number of episodes that feature legads. I don't know why. It just happens that there have been some fascinating cases. And we have also talked about the new show that's out right now called Criminal Minds Beyond Borders. It's about the FBI investigating cases in foreign countries. So it's kind of interesting to look at that show and also talk to different agents who've worked overseas. Let's go quickly through your uh, background. When did you join the FBI and what were you doing before you joined? 
Jerry, I first started out in 1977 with the Detroit Police Department as a patrolman. And after three years, uh, they had a financial problem, and they said that there were going to be 750 police officers laid off. And everybody in my patrol car laughed and said, that's not going to happen, until I found out I was 749 and I was out the door. And shortly after that, I got hired by the Lansing Police Department, and with that, I got a chance to work narcotics and different, because it was a smaller department, I got to do more things. And I stayed there until 1990, or just the year before, I worked on a task force with an FBI agent, and we had such a great time, he encouraged me to sign up. And I took the test, and I passed the test, and in 1990, I was heading off to Quantico, Virginia in April of 1990. Okay, and where were you assigned during your career? Uh, my first office was Philadelphia, where I met you, <laughs> and uh, I was there for nine years, and I got promoted. And I went to headquarters. I was in a criminal CID, the Criminal Intelligence Division. And I was there for two years, and I came out in uh, 2001, and I went to Newark. And as you all know, in September of 2001 was 9-11. And I was one of the on-scene commanders during that time because initially uh, New York was shut down because their command post was actually in the second tower. And they were being the largest field office in the FBI, they were counting people. So I was part of the team that set up the first command post in Newark. And after being there for five years, I went to headquarters um, for uh, a day trip, and I ran into a league at. And they happened to be looking for one for Lagos, Nigeria, and after telling them about my uh, background in working on task forces, they offered me 90 days to go over, and I guess it was a two-way street where they get a chance to look at me and I get a chance to look at them. And after 90 days, we had a kidnapping there, and I had so much fun, we got the person back, and uh, they offered me the job full-time. So my 90 days went from two years, and, and at the end of that two years, they offered me another year, and it ended up four years that I spent over in uh, West Africa, and part of that time was I went from eight countries, and then I became the representative for the director over all 54 countries. So if there was a problem in... Cape Town, I would go down and talk with the league at there. And if there was some a problem up north in Cairo, I would go up and talk to those uh, uh, that league at office. So it was uh, the hardest time, the best time of my career being a league at overseas. Oh, okay, so you said the hardest time. You know, I'm going to ask you what you meant by that. The the hardest time. What I meant by that was. When you're in a field office, you have a supporting team around you all the time. 
if you need a surveillance, you can go to the surveillance team. If you need uh, you need a, a, a SWAT team, you can go to a violent crime squad and do that. White collar crime, you can do that. A legat is a small office, but it has an FBI at the time was covering over 300 violations, and you had to be able to talk to all 300 violations before the ambassador or the council general or heads of states in many different countries. So that was the hardest uh, times, coming up with the right answer and not getting a call from the director saying, uh, I don't think we got a good fit. It's time for you to come home. <laughs> and that did not happen to you. No, I, I, was, I was very fortunate. Uh, some of the things I did before, as I told you, helped me out. And I was listening to one of your uh, earlier shows where uh, Jeff Covington said he was down at their command post and uh, office and the phone rang. And that's the scariest part on day one when you, you're sitting in your office and we had a nice office and I'm looking around. I said, this is my kingdom. And all of a sudden the telephone rings. He said, uh-oh. <laughs> I guess it's for me. I know that uh, you have a particular case that you want to uh, talk to us about. I'm also probably going to ask you to tell us a little bit about that kidnapping case that you mentioned. But the case that um, I know you want to concentrate on has to do with a child whose parents allow her to travel with her school uh, to Ghana, and she ends up dead. Yes, Jerry. It was, um, this was back in 2007, and I got a call from the ambassador, Bridgewater, who's the ambassador over in Ghana, the country Ghana. And that's one of my regional coverage. And I basically stationed out of uh, Lagos, and then I would travel when problems arise in different countries. And that was about 500 miles away. The telephone rang, and she was telling me about an 18-year-old female from Teaneck, New Jersey, who came over with her schoolmates uh, just, just around graduation time to pass out school supplies to some of the schools in uh, Accra. And um, they found her in the bottom of the swimming pool dead. And the parents think there was foul play. We need you to come over and lead the investigation. I had my secretary call the airport, got on a plane, and I flew over, not knowing what to expect. But once again, it's hard because you don't have all the resources that you have in the United States. I could have a evidence response team in the U.S. who can come over and help me. But since this was very fast, I had to do most of the work myself. And as once the uh, supervisor over the evidence response team and going to some of the trainings with them, I knew what to do and how to conduct this investigation. Now, had the parents traveled to Ghana too? No, they stayed over in uh, Teaneck, and they were going through their representative to get everything started. All right, so day one, you arrive. What do you do? First thing I do is I, I get a list of everybody that was in the hotel that night. You put together a list, and you get to know who to talk to. But 
all the people that all the students, all the chaperones were gone back to the United States. So you start from negative zero because you haven't you don't have anybody to talk to. And then you go and look at the guest register to see who else was in the hotel. And then we had one guy from China. He was the only guy in the hotel besides the student that on that evening. And he had already left back for China. And now I have to go through the legal office over in Hong Kong to to make sure uh, and see if we can get in contact with that person because once they leave country, they're not obligated to talk to us. I thought it would be an easy task. That person didn't want to get involved. So I'm, I'm now I'm at negative two. So what I did do was um, call the school, and the chaperones did want to talk to me, and they did have a copy of, uh, or they had some students that uh, recorded it. Also, there was video, uh, the pool was under video by the hotel. So I was able to take that whole, I mean, that video and take, uh, send it off to Quantico, Virginia to get it enhanced. The next step was to look at the autopsy um, report because they did do an autopsy before they flew the body back uh, to the United States. The autopsy report shows there was no drugs or foreign substance in her body. They didn't find any. Now, is there any reason at this point for you to suspect foul play? Is it something that she drowned, or is there something suspicious that's that's happening? Well, I treat it as a homicide in the beginning because when an 18-year-old young lady who's in very good health shouldn't be dying if she's in a, in a, in a swimming pool. And talking to the parents, I did contact them and let them know that I was investigating the case. And if they had any problems or concerns, please reach out and contact me. And the first question I asked them, uh, could your daughter swim? And they said, well, she's not a swimmer, but she can tread water. So I'm trying to rule out every if there was foul play. And just having an opinion of is not being foul play wasn't going to resonate really high with the parents because they think there is something criminally wrong. And so I'm interviewing. And why was that? Uh, because it was their daughter and she was the light of their life and they just didn't want to lose her and they couldn't fathom that it could be an accident. So that's what you're working with. You have grieving parents, and, and they're 6,000 miles away, and they're talking to uh, the press over in, in the U.S. So all the spotlight was on me to make sure that I did the best job that I was trained to do. Yeah, it sounds like you took a lot of responsibility. I mean, of course, every case, you know, that you work, you know, you put your, you know, 100% into it. But it sounds like because this was a young girl and that you have had spoken to the parents that you really felt a responsibility to get the answers. Yes, Jerry, because I, at the time, I, I, I have a daughter and she's a little bit older, but 
if something happened to my daughter, I would want the law enforcement officials, wherever they're at, to pull out all the stops and do everything they can to resolve it. And I treated her as she was my daughter. And I went in there and I did every imaginable investigative tool I could use, things. I would call people up and say, am I missing anything? And you do take it personal because you're responsible for that uh, in that office. The director sent you over because you're a a personal representative of him and the United States government and the people of the United States. And regardless of where you travel, people would like to know that somebody, if something happens, they are going to look for me or they're going to try to find out what happened. Now, what kind of assistance? I'm not even sure if you required the assistance, but did you have any assistance from the local police department? You, Because it's a solvent nation, Ghana is, you have to have assistance from them to for the go-ahead to investigate that case. The only assistance I got from them, assistance, is that uh, I looked at their first autopsy. They did do that, and they made everything available for me. That was it. But they wanted the matter resolved, and because Ghana is they want Ghana to be a tourist destination. And they don't want bad press that people send their kids or people come over and they don't come back the same way. So they they did everything they could to assist me on it. They're a very very good uh, uh, organization. One of the things that you've already mentioned was that your witnesses, your potential witnesses, have now returned. Did they return early because of this accident or incident, or was that the end of the trip? I believe it was a little bit early. Once she was uh, found dead, they returned shortly after that. Like I said earlier, it makes it very hard because everybody that you want to interview, the police did interview them before they left. And I had their written statements, but when you're doing a follow-up to find out what they saw or little holes in their investigation, let me plug those up. That's when I ran into red tape whereby the parents of those teenagers didn't want their kids involved. Oh, really? And why would that be? At that time, the parents of the victim, the Moore family, was going to sue the school system. Uh, because of what happened to their daughter, and other parents didn't want to get involved in the lawsuit, so they stayed neutral. They didn't. They didn't want their kids involved in it. Oh, that, that's that's sad. It is. I mean, because if it was one, I I presume if it was their kid, they would want heaven and earth to move to resolve what happened to them. But on this one, we were stonewalled. So now you mentioned that there was video and that you had sent that video to headquarters to be enhanced. What were the results? The results were, uh, after doing that, we, they enhanced it. And then we found that we saw Miss Moore walking by the pool, and she's the victim, and she went in. And all the kids were in the pool just 
you know, slapping water, playing with each other, having a great time. And she went in, but the film shows that she never came back out. So she actually died in front of, in plain sight, but nobody saw it. And at the end of the night, when they got out of the pool, they got up, went to their room, and it doesn't show her getting out of that pool. Wow. And so it, it's it's dark. I take it there's lights underwater in the pool, but nobody notices that she's there at the bottom? There are, unlike in America where, you know, everything is well lit, in Africa, which is a third world country, uh, that part of Ghana was, the pool wasn't lit like uh, it would be over here. And nobody saw it. Nobody saw a thing. Wow. Because it wasn't like they were holding her down or there was, you know, you know, horseplay in the water. It didn't show that. She just slipped in, started to drown. Nobody noticed. She went to the bottom and died. Right. And um, then one of the things was she didn't have her shoes on. And she, uh, they found her shoes and they turned them in, and then the shoes went missing, or they were flip-flops, and they went missing, and the parents thought that uh, the person who killed her stole her shoes also, so you had to disprove that. There was a basket uh, weaving uh, person who sat across the street. Five, seven days a week, they weave baskets and sell them to some of the tourists. Uh, It was made mention that that person might know something. And um, so every lead that came in, I stayed there, or my number two went out and investigated every lead. And then it it, it proved that uh, it didn't happen the way they thought it did. And then at the end of the investigation, I was set, satisfied with it. I flew 6,000 miles from Lagos, Nigeria to Teaneck, New Jersey, and sat down with the parents in person because I was the lead investigator and told them everything that I did. And Mm -hmm. I answered every question that they had. So I just wanted to put a face. They had a face with a name. I, I was, you know, all the way across the Atlantic. It was, it was, I was thinking like, what if this was my daughter? You know, Uh, it, it really bothered me even to this day when I do, talk about it it bothers me i wish i could have flew across there and had great news for them but i didn't have the news that they wanted and were they satisfied i partially i think they were satisfied in the other way i think they wasn't satisfied because they think that uh somebody held her down and um she just wouldn't go out the way that it, it eventually happened and they were they were still hurt. Did they have an opportunity to look at the video? Um, not at that time. I don't believe I showed them the video at that time. And that sounds like a very very difficult investigation. And I I guess you know the answer that it was just an accident just doesn't seem enough. But the reality is the reality. I mean, you are tasked to find the facts, and the facts are that it was 
an unfortunate accident. Yes, because sometimes bad things happen to good people. And they didn't want to believe that this occurred to their daughter. But, like I say, I just didn't want her to be a footnote in history where nobody ever looked under the rug to see what happened to her. I did everything I could. I talked to some of the best criminal minds I knew in the world at that time and see if I left anything out. Everybody said that you did that and more. But like I say, it was my office. It's my responsibility. And I couldn't put that on anybody else to make that call. And I didn't think it was right to do it over the telephone or do it in an email or even do it over Skype. I think they deserve uh, an in-person visit. And that's what I did. Well, can we, we do have a few minutes, Um, can we talk about, you teased us a little bit there. I don't know anything about this next case that I'm going to ask you about, but you said something about a, a kidnapping when you first got to uh, Lagos in your first uh, 90-day trial period. Can you tell us a little bit about that? That was, <laughs> yes, that was uh, Shell Oil Company. Um, what happened was uh, Lagos, Nigeria, or Nigeria, supplies probably a third of the oil that we use in this country. And one of the biggest problems that we have, that they had over there, is uh, Militants Against Men group. That's the name of the group, men. And um, for the uh, Militants for the Emancipation of the Niger Delta, N-I-G-E-R, Delta. That's a region of the country where oil is... uh, uh, that's where they get the oil from, and they feel. Could you could you repeat the acronym and 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 say it out again for me? It's uh, men M E N D, militants for the emancipation of Niger Delta, and it's N I G E R Delta, and that's a region of the country where all the major oil companies throughout the world are represented in that region of the world, or a region of the country. And what happened was, um, it's a very poor part of the country. And they think with all the money going out uh, from there, they should have better schools, they should have better hospitals, they should have running water, electricity, you name it. It should look like uh, Miami Beach or with all the money that's been generated out of there. Sounds re- reasonable to me. Well, yeah, yeah. And and everything I said it should be, it wasn't. They didn't have running water. Electricity was, uh, it would come on and go off. It's like blinking. It came on and so, uh, went off and on so much that after you've been there a while, you didn't even notice it. It was in the beginning, you stop and get up against the wall and, and make sure nobody's going to come up behind you. But it happened so much, you just say, stop for a second. Okay, the can of spam is over here. <laughs> and you get it and walk on. So hospitals were very bad. Um, when I traveled the country, I would have my first aid kit in case something happened. And with that being said, 
I used to tell people or joke with them, if I couldn't take bare aspirin for it, I would take British Airways. I'm out of there. (laughs) (laughs) So if you were sick, if there was any chance that you would end up in the hospital, then... Hey, book me a ticket. I'm out. I'm flying, you know. Um, So... I, I got to ask this question, then who was getting the money? I mean, if all this oil is being sold, I take it, to other countries for their use, who is getting the money? When I was there, they said 62 cents out of every dollar went to the Nigerian government. Okay? 62 okay. cents. And uh, we're talking billions and billions of dollars. And if you look it up on the map, even to, uh, yesterday I looked at, uh, got a call from a friend that's over there. There's an oil shortage. So the, the fuel is very short in uh, Nigeria, and uh, they are having ga- gas lines where you have to stand in line, you know, to get gas. And it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be a shortage on a company, a uh, country that's producing all this so it could be going to the government. Is it coming out of the government? I don't know. And I don't want to cross that line because there's still people over there. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah, we don't, we have to be sensitive. Yes, because I could be wrong, you know. Okay. That happened a couple times. But <laughs> so what happened was they would take some of the oil workers hostage and and some of them are U.S. citizens. So when it happens, normally they do it around 4.30, 5.30 in the morning, and I would get a call from the regional security officer, which is the RSO, and say, hey, we have a kidnapping. And they'll give me the name, and then I would call our PSYOC down in headquarters at FBI HQ and tell them, um, Ron Nolan has just been kidnapped. He's He's got this number. You know, he's been here for X amount of months because you're supposed to register with uh, the embassy or the consulate when you come into country. So if something happens, people know where to start to look for you. Okay. And that's what happened. I'll tell you a short story on that one, another kidnapping. We had a person by the name of... Uh, Billy Ray Graham was the name of the person. He was an oil worker for one of the oil companies, and they told me this around 5.30 in the morning. So I called Syoc and said, not saying Billy Ray Graham, I said, Billy Graham has just been kidnapped in Lagos. And I hear the phone drop. Oh, my goodness. I hear her yelling. They, they kidnapped Billy Graham in Lagos, Nigeria. Oh, oh, oh. And everybody's yelling that in the background. And then the unit chief came on the telephone. They have Billy Graham. No, Billy Ray Graham. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> That's the difference. You know, you know, you know, don't, don't bring out the jets yet, you know. But uh, we, it's like and every time we would have a kidnapping, it would. How often would you have these? Uh, in first two years, we would have them probably once every other month. We had 26 total kidnappings of U.S. citizens in, uh, in the Delta area. And it would, the average time would be around three weeks. And with that being said, that's every day 
you're working with the uh, security from the oil companies, you're working with the government, and you're trying to get their release. And um, we were very fortunate. We uh, Out of the 26 that I took part in, we got all 26 back. So this is 26 kidnappings within a three-year yes. three oh, period. Right. And it happens, wow. it happens a lot. And what do they want? Sometimes they want money. Uh, the lowest thing that we got them back was a case of Johnny Walker Red. <laughs> Believe it or not, that's what they wanted. And uh, we got them that. Um, sometimes it'd be money involved, but we as the government did not hand over money to this group. And um, and how we actually did it is probably not up for discussion. <laughs> okay. okay. But we got them back, and that's the most important thing. Um, one guy that we got back was, uh, he called me, uh, we talked after they released him, and he said, I didn't think you would look for me. And I said, why? He said, well, I've been arrested several times. Uh, but I, you know, I really love the FBI because y'all, y'all came in and y'all got me out. So, uh, so we have a new friend. Yes, but then again, the next week or two weeks later, I found out that he got caught shoplifting at a dollar store in the U.S. <laughs> but, uh, but it happens. But it was, it's, it's, it's a good investigations to do. Um, it takes a lot of your time. One of the functions as being a league that you have to be able to liaison with not just the government but other security teams that's inside uh, that country. And you find overseas that all the alphabet soup agencies from the CIA on down, um, you find that you work better as a team overseas than you do in the U.S. because we're all we got. And we stick together, very close-knit family overseas. So everybody brings something to the table uh, to help. So when did you leave Legat Lagos? I left uh, in 2010, or December of 2009. Then where did you spend those last two years before you retired? I did 90 days in Morocco. And uh, because they needed a, a second person there in Rabat. So that's northern uh, Africa. And then I went back to headquarters where I was in CID or the Criminal Intelligence Division. I oversaw some of the gang programs uh, on the west side of the country. And when you decided to retire, um, was there a particular reason that you went out when you went out? The league at world took a lot out of me because every day when you got a telephone call for four years or almost, it was almost four years, it wasn't anything good. It was always a serious matter and you working that and you traveling 100,000 miles a year going between all the countries. Uh, kind of burns you out. And I had 13 years before with the police department and then I had 20-some-odd years with uh, the Bureau, I thought it was time to just relax. I had uh, three grandkids. I wanted to play with them and see them. 
and in this last chapter just rest a little bit and that was the reason why I didn't leave because I, I was mad at the bureau I left because it was just time to go well you certainly certainly deserved that time well thank you it's been a good journey so what are you doing now I am right now I you retired. retired after in uh, 2011 and I took off to play golf for a little bit. I know that's, uh, but after working 34 years, I decided that I needed a little break, so I took time off. And then my wife was reassigned. She's a commercial officer with uh, Commerce and brought me here to Atlanta, Georgia. And while I was down here, uh, a friend of mine's coaxed me out of retirement by saying he was starting a brand new unit with the water department and um, hired me on as a senior investigator. So I went to work for them about two years ago and I never knew so much about water that I know now, but it's one of the, if a terrorist attack hit, one of the places they want to hit is the water. If your water supply is bad, you know, they can make big moves toward, you know, taking you over. And we're part of the JTTF, or the Joint Terrorist Task Force. So I've been doing that. And I do a lot of teaching down here for the city. I do drug awareness classes. And um, and that's about it for the last two years. And and at the end of uh, this month, I, I... I retire again, and the next assignment for my wife is uh, Cairo, Egypt. So I'm going back to almost where I started in the foreign program. Oh, wow. And how long will you be there? Uh, two years. Okay. Well, at least uh, you're going to feel comfortable. You're going to know exactly what to expect. Uh, yes. Just um, like I say, living in a third world country is nothing like living here in the U.S. And, and a lot of people complain about uh, the U.S. But once you lived over there, you have a greater appreciation for what the U.S. has to offer. And every day in some of these third world countries, they come to the embassies or the consulates and they stand in line. I mean, all day trying to get a visa to come over here. And when you ask them where do they want to come, you know, you you probably say, where do you want to come in America? New York, California, Miami, Chicago. And their response is, America. And I say, well, where at in America? The USA. (laughs) And they stand there. Even when they get turned down the next month, they're back in line again, and they try and, uh, to get over here. So that's a lot to say, and um, I really enjoyed it while I was there, and it gave me a better appreciation for what I got. And the last thing, I'm doing my family tree. And when I was over there uh, in Ghana, they said, you're Canadian. You're one of us. And then I went to, uh, when I was in Nigeria, they would say, you're a Yoruba man, you're one of us. So I did a DNA, and uh, it came back. They were both right. 
Oh, really? Yes. 24% of me came from uh, uh, Nigeria. 28% came from Ghana. Wow. And uh, another 10% came from Iceland. What? <laughs> yeah. So I went to all three places. Oh, really? Yes. I've been to Nigeria. Well, I lived in Nigeria and Ghana, and I visited Iceland. Uh, and now I'm uh, finishing up on my mother's side, my father's side, and I got back to uh, the 1700s and uh, looking at death records. So this is my truly my greatest case, just trying to find out more about uh, the people in my family that came before me. Well, that's a true investigator. That's your, where your investigative skills are going to be put to uh, use. Well, thank you. And that's the end of the interview. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, back at jerrywilliams.com in this episode's show notes, I have photos, photos of Ron Nolan, and I have links to a couple of newspaper articles about the case of the teenage girl uh, from Teaneck, New Jersey. Before we end, I just want to make sure that I let you know how much I appreciate you listening to FBI Retired Case File Review. I love getting the emails and the tweets about the show. Thank you so much. I know I ask you to do a lot. I ask you to subscribe to the show on iTunes. I ask you to share it with your friends on all the social media platforms. And most importantly, I ask you to sign up for my email newsletter. So do them all. Pick which one you want to do but please continue to support the show. As you know, this show is sponsored by FBIRetired.com, the only online directory made available to the general public featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. Thank you for listening, and I hope you come back again next week for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.